Some of you may have seen the 2004 film, Saved. It's a bit of a parody, probably a satire is the best way to describe it. And it follows a group of high school kids at a Christian school. And as at most Christian schools, there's a, a difference in the student body there. And one particular student, played by Mandy Moore, whose name in the film is Hilary Fay, is tasked with the principal to help kind of recover one of the students who is straying. There's a student who's been struggling with what she believes, and the principal encouraged her to go be a warrior for Christ and reclaim this soul. And so the very next scene opens up, and it's, it's kind of humorous and cringy at the same time, where Hillary Fay and her friends pull up behind uh, Mary, her name is, and grab her, throw her into the van, and try to do a, a, a makeshift exorcism on her. And she escapes from that and jumps out, and Hillary Fay follows her, yelling at her and telling her that she needs to repent from her life of sin. And her argument, as she's red-faced and yelling, culminates in the phrase, Jesus loves you. And Mary says, you don't know anything about love, and turns and walks away. And incensed, Hillary takes the Bible that's in her hands and throws it at Mary, hitting her in the back, saying at the same time, I am filled with the love of Jesus. <laughs> it's a bit humorous and cringeworthy at the same time. Many of us have had experience with Christians who are like that, where they, they talk about love, but it seems like nothing in their life matches up with that. Many of us know folks who, who say that they believe in Jesus, and yet you look at their life, and you wonder, where's the evidence of that? If you've ever struggled with that, or maybe you're here today even just wondering about following Jesus in the first place, but you look at Christians or people who say that they claim the name of Christ, and you're like, I don't see what difference that makes in their life, then you're in a very good place to hear what James, this half-brother of Jesus, had to say about what faith and life together should look like. And so we're going to call our study today, Faith Works. And it's actually the first part of a two-part study on the passage that we're going to be looking at today. James, let me remind you, is the half-brother of Jesus who didn't believe in his brother, didn't follow him when he first began his ministry, but had his mind radically changed when he met his brother after he'd been crucified alive again. And this James became the leader of the first Christian church in Jerusalem where the apostles preached and people believed um, and by the thousands in, in the name of Jesus, and James became their pastor. Persecution hit those disciples in Jerusalem, and they were scattered. And so now James is writing to them as they're scattered in different places, knowing that life is challenging for them, knowing that life is hard for them, yet still calling them to live as followers of Jesus. And so we've been working our way through that, and we're at chapter 2, verse 14. And so let's, let's do a deep dive into this passage that we just read a few moments ago. James poses the question like this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? He's dialing in on someone who's making the claim to be a believer in Jesus, who believes in God, who believes in Jesus, who says that they believe Jesus is King and Savior. And so James says, if someone says that, but they have no works. That is, there's, there's no evidence of it in their life. It doesn't change anything about them. He says, what good is it? 
And that's a good question to ask. And it should grab us by the throat and cause us to really stop and think about what faith in Jesus should look like for anyone who believes in him. Not only does he say what good is it, but he follows it up with this interesting question. Can that faith save him? A person who says they believe, but there's no evidence of it in their life, does that faith actually save them? And so what James is concerned about is a counterfeit faith that masquerades as genuine faith. It's easy for anyone to talk the talk, but what about walking the walk? And James is going to highlight for us there's actually a way of believing that is not belief at all. It's not the real thing. And so in the passage we're going to look at this week and next week, James is going to give us four case studies. We're going to look at two negative case studies this week, and when we pick back up together next week, we're going to look at the two positive ones. And so the very first example he gives for us is in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And this is what he says. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? James has already talked about the necessity of of helping those who are poor. You may remember earlier in the chapter, which was back in November when we studied together, these words. He said, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or or sit literally under my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. You see, James, who follows the Lord Jesus Christ, thinks that other people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ should care about the misfits and the outcasts, those who are poor and marginalized, because Jesus himself did. Sinclair Ferguson said this, the real evidence of character and the ultimate test a spiritual maturity is not how someone reacts to the great, the famous, the rich, and noble, but how that person has responded to the marginalized, the unnoticed, the poor, the struggler, and the needy. Not who you know, but the needy for whom you care. This is the real measure of men and women. It is certainly the real measure of those who serve Christ. And James, who lived 2,000 years before Sinclair Ferguson, if he could hear Sinclair Ferguson say that, I think would give a hearty amen to that. So back in chapter 2, verse 15, James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Now mind you, he's, he's writing to Christians, right? Brothers and sisters, this is family language. If a brother or sister of yours in Christ, a fellow believer in Jesus, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, This not only was a hypothetical, but this was a real thing. Earlier in chapter 1, he talked about the brother or sister who was in humble circumstances. And he also talked about how the rich are oppressing them. 
And so James is not just speaking in hypotheticals here, but he's speaking in a very real sense what some of them are experiencing. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, that phrase go in peace would have been the traditional Hebrew greeting, shalom, which you and I typically translate as peace, but it has a broader connotation than that. It talks about flourishing. So James says if if someone, a brother or sister comes in and, and they are lacking in clothing and food, and you say to them, Shalom, I wish that you would prosper. But do not give them the things needed for the body. You see their need, and yet you're not moved to meet that need. James says, what good is that? I wonder if James, in some sense, has that imprinted story of the prodigal son in his mind while he speaks these words. Jesus told this story of a man who was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, who was beaten up and robbed and left for half dead. And he talks about two religious people, two people who had orthodox faith, two people who would have been recognized everywhere in Israel, a priest and a Levite. Both were on the same road, and they saw that man who had been beaten up and left for dead, and they pass by on the other side. Two of the very persons that you think, if anyone would stop and help them, it would be these appointed religious spiritual people in Israel. And they did nothing. And yet a Samaritan, the despised Samaritans, when he was traveling on that road and saw that man left for dead, went to him. He had compassion on him, bandaged his wounds, and took him to an inn and paid the innkeeper to take care of him until he returned and could take back over. Jesus said, this is what I mean when I I talk about loving other people. So that Levite, that, that priest, what good was their faith? What good was their profession to believe in the one true God if this is how it works itself out in their life? I love what Martin Luther one time said. He said, God doesn't need your good works but your neighbor does. The Apostle Paul, writing to Christians living in Galatia, said this, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially to those who are in the church, especially to those who believe. So James presents this opportunity that these Christians had. And if anyone says to them, Shalom, be warm and be filled, and doesn't do anything about it, what good is it? So in verse 14, he frames that story with the question, what good is it? And verse 16, he concludes that story by saying, what good is it? Dan Doriani, in his commentary on the book of James, said this. James 2.16 ends with a question. What good is it? None. It does no good for the brother or sister in need. Kind wishes also do no good for those who utter them. Indeed, they prove their faith is empty. Craig Blomberg, in his commentary, put it like this. Just as words without action profited the poor person nothing, so faith without works profits the quote-unquote believer nothing. In fact, James is going to go one step further in verse 17 and say this. 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Notice that James doesn't say is, is defective or just needs to grow up. He says faith, if there's no accompanying works, actions, or deeds, is dead. There is a kind of faith that is a counterfeit of the real thing. And James says you can tell the difference by the way it manifests itself in real life. Sam Alberry puts it like this. Deadless Christianity is dead Christianity. It is counterfeit. Faith that has no real impact on behavior is not authentic. Christian faith. Real faith acts. Real love does. Or what we said in our sermon title, real faith works. So that was the first example he gave. Now James is going to give us a second example. He's actually going to just bring up an argument that someone makes and then give us the example. So let's look at that argument he says. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. For the longest time, I was always kind of stuck on this statement. It seems like it's backwards that they should be saying, you have works, but I have faith. And that's actually one way of reading it. Someone says, you, James, have faith, and I, the objector, have works. And then it kind of clicked for me one time. That's not exactly what's going on here. The, the person who's speaking up here is saying, you, as in some of James's audience, you have faith, but James has works. In other words, they're they're making the claim that there's some Christians who have the gift of faith, and then there's some Christians who have the gift of works. That's the argument, right? There's just some people who believe, and there's no evidence of it, and there's some people who, who have lots of evidence of it, all right? And so then James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is really the key statement to understanding everything that he's talking about in this passage and the one we're going to look at next week. Show me. Show me your faith. Apart from works. Which is really interesting to think about. How do you show an invisible claim to belief if there's nothing to show? Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. That is, I will show you that my, my faith in Jesus actually changes the way I live. James is not claiming to be perfect here. He's not saying he's arrived. But he's saying, I can show you the difference that Jesus makes, not only in me, but through me. And so let's just pause and ask ourselves the question. How do you show your faith, um, how do you show your belief that Jesus is the King and Savior of the world? It's not a trick question. How do you show that belief? Not simply how do you hold that belief, but how do you show it? How is that seen? And James is going to answer the question by saying, the way you show your belief that Jesus is the King and Savior of the world is by your works, by your deeds, by your actions. remember in high school hearing a youth pastor say this, if you are arrested for being a follower of Jesus, what would be the evidence against you? That question, in a sense, has stuck with me. He was trying to make the point. If you are a follower of Jesus, there should be proof of it in your life. 
There should be evidence. People should be able to see it by the way that you live. And James, in verse 19, <laughs> continues by saying, You believe that God is one, you do well. He's echoing someone saying basically what was the Shema, that phrase in Deuteronomy. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a statement that any Jewish person at the time of Jesus would say every single day. And so James says, you believe that God is one? You do well. Good job. And then James says this. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, you have orthodox faith. You believe the right thing about God. Guess what? So do the devils. So are those who are spiritually set at odds with God, who oppose his, his every move. You have that in common with them. So let's make this point. Having correct doctrine is not the same thing as having genuine saving faith. You see that from what James is saying here? You do well to believe the right things. Great. Even demons do that. And they shudder. What difference does that make in your life? Having correct doctrine is not the same thing as having genuine saving faith. And someone says, wait, are you saying that we are saved by works, that we somehow merit eternal life by the things we do? Let me be clear. We are not saying that at all. Think about the person who was crucified to the side of Jesus. At one point, when the three were crucified, both people on the side of Jesus were mocking him. And then something changed in that one person. Maybe it was the way that he saw Jesus interact with the crowd. Maybe it's the way he heard Jesus praying for the very people who crucified him. Maybe it was the way that he looked at his mother. We don't know exactly what happened, but something shifted in him where he said, this is actually the Son of God. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. His faith simply expressed itself by the prayer, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Which is actually a very bold prayer to say to someone who's being crucified, right? You're thinking they're not going to have much of a future. So this man had no good works to offer to Jesus. Jesus, because I've done some good things in my life, would you remember me? That's not what he does. He simply says, would you remember me? There's this great poem. It's actually been made into a hymn called Rock of Ages. And it has these lines inside it. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We do believe that we are saved by true faith alone in Christ. But the question that James is raising here, is that faith that saves, what does it end up looking like in the person who believes? 
So this is an important point. A genuine faith which truly clings to Christ is a faith that is alive. This living faith will express itself in tangible, visible deeds of love. It is impossible for it not to do so. We're not saying that the person who has this living faith is perfect. We're not saying that sometimes they don't sin in grievous ways, or even sometimes maybe backslide for a season. We are saying that that person, when you look at them over time, you will see evidence of true faith expressing itself in their life. You'll see them wanting to obey Jesus. You'll see them doing acts and deeds of kindness. So as we think about what James is saying here, and where he's brought us so far in this passage, let's just spend the rest of our time applying it to our lives in three different ways, and then we'll pick up his argument again next week. The first one is this. Let's embrace good works as God's design for our lives. The Apostle Paul in writing to Christians living in the city of Ephesus, um, probably articulated this the best way that we have ever heard. <laughs> he writes to them and says, And you are dead in trespasses and sin in which you used to walk. Not that they were dead physically, they were dead spiritually in their trespasses and sin. They were slaves to sin. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then he emphasizes that passage again when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When we come to Christ, who is the Savior, and we trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, we're given it. Not because our hands are full of good works. In fact, the Bible tells us that all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight when we try to rely on them for some kind of approval or blessing from him. We simply believe and not work. We are saved. But then Paul goes on in the very next breath and says these words. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see that phrase masterpiece, that word masterpiece? I'm sorry, workmanship. I'm getting ahead of myself. It is in the original Greek, literally the word for a great work of art or a masterpiece. In fact, there's several translations that translate it that way. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And so if we're just making a little pop quiz, a kind of a little catechism, just on that little passage that Paul has just written, we could ask the question, how are we saved? And the answer is, by grace alone, apart from works. But why are we saved? To do good works. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. They have gone from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, and now that spiritual life is pulsating in them, and it works itself out, however imperfectly, in the way they live and treat other people. But someone says, but didn't James say that if a person has faith alone, that faith can't save him? It seems like he's saying that we are saved by our works. James does raise the question. If a person says they have faith, but they have no works, 
Can that faith save them? And what James is going to press home for us is not that works save us, but the kind of faith that saves inevitably will have works. It will have fruit. And so we could put it like this. We don't do good works in order to earn salvation, but because we have experienced salvation. We don't bring good works to the cross, but having experienced the grace and forgiveness at the cross, we then get up to live a life filled with good works. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 15, the last conversation he had with his disciples before he was betrayed and crucified. He said, whoever abides in me, that word abide is a fancy word for live. Whoever abides lives in me and I in him. It is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. And what? So prove to be my disciples. According to Jesus, when you and I bear good fruit, and the way that we live, and the way that we treat other people, and the good works that we do, we're actually proving that we are his disciples. So that's the first point of application. Here's the second one. Let's examine our faith for the existence of the fruit of good works. If it is true that there is a counterfeit faith that doesn't save, and a true faith in Jesus that does save, how do we know the difference? James is going to say, and has said to us, it will show up in the fruit of your life. And so let me encourage you to ask yourself this question. Do I find myself doing good works simply because Jesus has changed my life? When I hear of someone who is struggling, is my heart drawn after them to want to help? Do I think of my life as having been blessed so that I can be a blessing to other people? Is there something in me that compels me to want to get involved? I'm not saying you have to fix every problem in the world. It's impossible to do that. But when opportunities come up, like the Apostle Paul said, is it the beat of your heart to want to do good? That's the key. Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. If Christ is living in you, my friends, if Christ is living in me, then it will show itself. It's impossible for it not to. I remember this past summer having a conversation with a university student. Some of you may remember him, Ope Amy. We baptized him last summer. Great young man from Nigeria. He was struggling with some questions about what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does faith in Jesus look like? And he had gone to a place in this town who told him that you can believe in Jesus but then turn your back on him, actually reject Jesus for the rest of your life, become an atheist, and you're still saved. And he said, that kind of hit me wrong. I just, I just didn't know what to do it with that, and I, I wondered what, what you thought about it. And so I opened my Bible to James chapter 2. We walk through this passage where it says that faith demonstrates itself by the works that we do. Now, let me just say, my friends, I know that this can be disconcerting for some, because some of us know folks who have made a profession of faith, people that we love, we hold dear, and they no longer walk with Christ. And, of course, we want Christ to save them, and we know they're not saved by their works. 
But let's listen to what James is saying and try to, to filter their lived experience through what James is saying here. A counterfeit faith does not persevere. A counterfeit faith does not show itself in a life of following Jesus. But a real faith does. And so let that inform the way you pray for that person. Let that inform potential future conversations you may have with that person. A living faith will produce good works. We could put it like this. Faith produces works like fruit trees produce fruit. It's in their nature to do so. And it's in the nature of a true follower of Jesus to begin living like him and letting the life of Jesus express itself in them. So our first point of application was, let's embrace good works as God's design for our lives. The second one was, let's examine our faith for the existence of the fruit of good works. And here's the third and final point of application. Let's express our faith by intentional acts of love. I mentioned Paul's letter to the Galatians earlier. There is this debate about um, theology and what, what kind of the threshold is as a follower of Jesus. The back story was that, was the argument that if you wanted to follow a Jewish Messiah, you had to become Jewish yourself. And Paul, who was a Jew, said, no, that's not right. <laughs> you don't have to become Jewish, become circumcised, um, observe all the holy days to believe in the, in the Messiah. But he said the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. I love that phrase. The only thing that counts in your life and in mine is faith in Jesus expressing itself through loving acts of kindness, through real acts of compassion. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Someone says, well, Paul, does it not count that we believe the right things about Jesus? Of course that counts. He's using hyperbole here. The only thing that counts, what we're looking for in the life of a follower of Jesus, is not so much does he have all his theological T's and I's crossed. I said that wrong. Theological T's crossed and I's dotted. But does that person begin to look like Jesus? Because you can have a counterfeit faith and believe all the right things and you look nothing like Jesus. Paul writing to a friend of his by the name of Titus. It's a little book in the New Testament called Titus. I would encourage you to read it if you haven't. It is filled with this concern that followers of Jesus act like Jesus. So Paul says, for example, in chapter 2, be ready for every good work. How does a person make themselves ready for every good work? That's a good way of putting that, right? Think about a team that prepares itself to compete. They go through preparation. They get they were game face on. They are ready. Christians, how are we getting ourselves ready for every good work? He goes on and tells Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. He wants Titus to be an example of that so other believers can look upon Titus's life and say that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. He goes on and tells Titus, about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. That might be a good question to ask ourselves. In our discipleship and in our, in our following Jesus, are we zealous? Not just mildly interested, 
not just occasionally stepping up to the plate. Are we zealous for good works? Paul, again, continues. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may devote themselves to good works. And again, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Following Jesus should make a difference in the life of the followers of Jesus. And it looks like they're very interested, in fact, zealous, devoted, ready to step up and engage this world with good works. There's a man by the name of Chrysostom. He lived in the late 300s. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople. And his commentary on the book of Titus, he said, Paul urges that they not wait for those who are needy to come to them but to seek out those who need their assistance. Thus the considerate man shows his concern and with great zeal will perform his duty. You see what Chrysostom says here? This man was known as John the Golden Mouth. He was a a great preacher. He says that Paul is saying, we, we don't just wait for an opportunity to present itself. We go looking for opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. So my friends, just, just imagine, what if, what if you and I were so blown away by the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ that we just found ourselves wanting to do good things in this world? We've been so blessed by Jesus that we want to bless others. Imagine, my friends, what if you and I, because of our contemplation on what Jesus has done for us, are actually transformed into the kinds of people who want to do good things for others. I remember my friend Pete, when I lived in Calgary, we had a Good Friday service, and he was just blown away as we went through that service, thinking about the sacrifice of Jesus on his behalf. Then he told his family after the service, I'll meet you at home. And he went down and spent the rest of the day talking with people on the streets of Calgary who were homeless, buying them food. And as I was talking to him about that afterwards, he just said, I, I, just, I just felt compelled because of all the things that God has blessed me with in Christ, I just felt compelled to go and to bless other people. My friends, that was my friend Pete's faith expressing itself in love. And so let these words of Jesus guide us. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine. That's another way of saying that is let your faith be seen so that those who do see your faith expressed in good works may give glory to God, our Father who is in heaven. What good words those are from Jesus. And so, my friends, let me leave you with this blessing. May your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ be living and active as it expresses itself in tangible works of love. My friends, I love this church. You guys step up to the plate over and over again. Whenever we have presented situations or opportunities to serve in this community, whether it's by food or help people in our church, y'all have stepped up. I'm so proud of you. Let me continue to encourage you to do so more and more. You're living a beautiful life before Jesus. I'm so thankful for that.